millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the first CapEx podcast of 2022. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. I'm here with Alice Denby, our deputy editor. Hello, Alice. Hello. And we are delighted to join from the IEA, newly installed at the IEA, uh, Matthew Lesh. Hello, Matthew. Thank you for having me. And just remind us what your new job title is, by the way. Head of Public Policy. All right. So Matthew is here to join us for a slightly revamped format for the podcast for 2022. What we're going to be doing is every other week we're going to do a more kind of topical uh, recording and discussion interspersed with our usual sit-down interviews with some of the best writers and thinkers and politicians and so on. So we'll be having a podcast uh, for you guys to listen to every week um, of 2022. So a slight change from from last year. Uh, The format for our more topical podcast is going to be pretty simple. We're going to pick the top two or three biggest stories of the week. And then each of us, so me, Alice, and whoever our guest is, will also pick our own favourites to, to chew through that. So this week, I think we can all agree what the biggest story has been fairly easily, um, whether you want to call it party gate or implicit work events. Uh, the Prime Minister hasn't had a, a great time of it, so I think we're going to spend uh, most of the time talking about that. And then, given that Matt is uh, our resident Antipodean, we're also going to discuss the um, unreal saga of Novak Djokovic's uh, attempt to enter Australia, detention in the hotel, and Nigel Farage's visit to Belgrade. A very, very strange saga. But anyway, without further ado, let's kick off with uh, Boris. I mean, Matthew, what, I mean, what are your thoughts on this? You, you presumably watched him at PMQs on, on Wednesday cutting a pretty forlorn figure. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating to watch Boris try to talk himself out of another scandal. I mean, my initial thoughts are, one, uh, how busy is the Westminster Tesco? As every single event at number 10 seems to be bring your own booze. I mean, it's a, it's a policy I fully support. And I think uh, our friends at the, the Taxpayers Alliance need to come out in favour of the, the government not spending any of its money on um, booze, booze up events. But I think, I think more seriously for Boris, this is, this is a danger point for him. Um, and it's not because this in itself is, is going to be the end of him, I, I don't think. But it's because things are just... Um, over time growing and growing about frustrations against him. We've had um, scandal after scandal 
um, his MPs being forced to support him. And then on more so on the policy front and where the country's at, things aren't looking particularly positive over the coming months with cost of living issues, um, issues around increasing taxes and energy prices, um, the sense in which it's not clear what the government stands for or why they're there. Um, all you've got Boris able to say is we did vaccines, well, that's great, but, you know, that's... It's one thing, but what is the, the vision and direction of this government? And you put all that together, and I think that's where Boris is, is quite weak. Yeah, I think that's, that's a fair assessment. I think something you touched on there is there isn't this kind of huge groundswell of love for the domestic agenda. Stuff like um, net zero, uh, particularly, I think, doesn't feel like natural territory for a lot of conservative backbenchers or, or party members. Um, we'll come on to that later, actually, because I, I, I've picked it as uh, one of my, my picks of the week. Um, Alice, I mean, you've worked in Parliament for a Conservative MP and a minister. I mean, they're pretty, Tory MPs can be a pretty uh, fractious bunch at the best of times. I mean, how do you imagine most of them are feeling now? I think this must just be so humiliating for Tory MPs and for ministers, especially the day before PMQs, where ministers were having to go out where there was no defence, having to just completely stonewall and say, just wait for the inquiry. Mm. And I feel for every MP who's going to be getting hundreds of emails from their constituents, absolutely furious, they're going to be getting the kind of stories that we've seen of people saying, you know, I was watching my mother die on Zoom and Boris Johnson and the staff at Number 10 were parting in the garden. And, and, and every MP is going to feel that personally. And, and they're going to have to reply to their constituents. Um, so I really feel for them. And I think they will be absolutely fuming about this. That said, it doesn't feel to me like they are furious enough at the moment to become regicidal. It feels like Boris has bought himself some time. Uh, and MPs are giving him the benefit of the doubt until this inquiry comes out. Yeah, I mean, I think the point you sort of, again, you touched on it there, is that obviously the, the people you most sort of sympathise with are all the people you've seen, just endless stories of what other people were doing at that time. And the kind of point-counterpoint is obviously what you... I mean, to call it a bad look is just is too much of an understatement. It's very emotive and it really... Yeah, gets... and that's what makes this one different from the previous allegations we had. So, you know, you had the picture uh, of them in the garden, but that was at a different point. You know, that one you could kind of maybe see, OK, that's perhaps a work meeting that spilled out into the garden. But this one was the height of the strictest lockdown. This was when there was no vaccine. People were terrified. People were only allowed to see one other person outdoors. And, you know, you've got a trestle table of drinks. You know, it's unthinkable for most people who were, who were there at the time that, that they yep. would have done that. Yeah, I think the central point is always the, the very simple fact that these were the people making the rules, telling us we couldn't see our friends, we couldn't see our family, uh, telling small business owners that they, they couldn't operate um, and, and really ensuring kind of a general state of fear around the country. And yet at the same time, here they are quite, I think, blatantly breaking the rules. And I don't think Boris's excuse that he thought it was a work meeting um, is is particularly believable. And nor is let's wait for the inquiry. I don't, I don't know what he, he's expecting the inquiry to say, since we already kind of have a pretty good idea of the, what the facts are here. So it's then a question of, is this survivable for Boris? And, and that's where a lot of discussions leading towards the end of this week, will the letters be going in? And I'm not so convinced that it's, this is over for Boris. I think that the Tory party intentionally and probably rightfully makes it quite difficult to get rid of a leader. I don't think Boris is going to go anywhere. Um, I don't think he's in a mood um, to, to resign himself. And, and therefore, my, my premises, my, my, my basic worldview is that Boris kind of limps on and on for, for quite a while longer. I think I, 
I have a few thoughts on that. One is, I think, first, the, the thing about the letters is interesting because um, Graham Brady, who's the chair of the 1922 committee, is also um, closely involved with our parent organisation, the Centre for Policy Studies. And a while back, he spoke to us about um, this kind of phenomenon of people saying letters are going in. And he mentioned an example of an MP, a nameless MP, uh, who went on TV and said that they had put their letter in and then withdrawn it. And the crux of the story being that the letter had never existed at all. The other one is, I think is a bit more of a kind of urban myth, is that um, some MPs just like to go up to him quite publicly and hand him envelopes that don't actually have a letter in. So I always take the kind of letters in stories with a bit of a, a pinch of salt. And like you say, the, the, the arithmetic is actually pretty hard. Like, I think you need 54 letters to go in to trigger it. And then you'd need, what, 180-odd to actually vote in favour. And that, I think, is the number. It's a sort of, there's a sort of game theory aspect to it as well, because you know if you, if you screw it up, then they can't do it again for another year. So there's that to kind of factor in, and yeah. they're going to blot their copybook with the leader forever, basically. I think it's easy to, to underestimate the extent of loyalty amongst Tory backbenchers for Boris Johnson. I mean, if nothing else, he did win them a huge majority, even if some of them don't necessarily appreciate what he's doing today. And he did for, for um, get Brexit done and for better or worse, um, handled the, the, the pandemic. Um, and bringing that together, you might hear a lot from a, a few disgruntled MPs, but is that enough to actually trigger a leadership vote at this point? I don't think so. And the, the best example here I think about is just how long it took to get rid of Theresa May, even after she not only had lost a majority in an election, had clearly nowhere to go on, on the biggest issue of the day, which was Brexit, um, and was, was absolutely trapped and stuck. The amount of time and effort it took to get rid of her was beyond extraordinary. About two years. Yeah, there was also yeah. an obvious successor in her case, which there isn't at the moment, you know, where there are sort of people building up their, their war chests or whatever, but there is not an obvious person waiting in the wings. No, I think that's, that's a fair assessment. Um, and, we're, you know, it's not CapEx, it's sort of stock in trade to deal in kind of runners and riders who's up, who's down, but I think it's fair to say that there are a lot of quite similarly placed mm. figures in terms of their political capital... Um, differing levels of experience and stuff, but and there's also people who've given it a run in, in the past and haven't been successful, so I'm not sure if they want to do so again. I mean, Alice, what what do you think he needs to do now? We've seen this kind of pretty... I wouldn't say it was half-hearted, but it was couched in terms that made it sound a bit loyally. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yes, I think... This is what makes me think that he is going to get off on a technicality. I think it'd be very difficult to prove a breach of the ministerial code or that he misled Parliament unless there's a kind of smoking gun that says he saw that email right. uh, it, and he must have known it was a party. And this is why I actually think that Keir Starmer's attacks on him at PMQs were pretty weak. I thought saying, you know, you clearly breached the ministerial code. I mean, this is not something that really the general public will respond to. They don't know what, what it means. And I think he's going to be proved wrong there. Um and I think there's an interesting politics here of calling on someone to resign when you know they're not going to. Does it make you look weak or does it make you look strong? I'm not sure. I agree with you. I think that the uh, there was a very good column a while ago, I think by Stephen Bush, who I think still at the New Statesman, anyway, about why you really shouldn't just go in. The currency of calling for resignations is a very finite and fine thing. And if you use it too much, you just end up looking a bit silly. Mm. He hasn't always gone for the resign thing with, with other ministers. 
But I, I kind of agree. I watched PMQs and I thought it's difficult. It's actually, I think PMQs is more difficult when there is an open goal in that sense because all you can do is disappoint. Um, and, but I do feel like he does slightly lack that kind of killer instinct for that, that, that knack for a really pithy line, which is actually something one of Boris Johnson's kind of bigger strengths is the distilling messages into memorable things. I can't really remember a soundbite of Keir Starmer's that's kind of imprinted. I don't think Boris Johnson's necessarily that great a performer at PMQs either. No, not at PMQs, but he, in, in his general sort of facility with yeah. phrase making. But funnily okay. enough, that sort of format doesn't really suit his style of kind of bluster and verbosity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it really matters in a sense what happens in PMQs as much as we get obsessed about during the week. Um, in a rare occasion, I did, um, making sure I was properly prepared for this podcast, watch it. Um, and you, you seem to have this obvious, quite bizarre back and forth where they call for him to resign. He says, let's wait on the inquiry. And I can just see him continuing to bluster it through. The biggest risks, I think, coming up for Boris aren't necessarily PMQs, but it's um, the huge um, down in the Tory polling, at least so far this week. It's what actually happens when this report comes out, although I don't think that'll be as big a deal as people are making it out to be. Um, the, the huge danger point is probably the May local elections. And that if there's a huge swath of lost Tory seats um, and, and some MPs due to calculations and work out if they get that kind of result of general election, how many of them might be out of office. Um, that's when I can possibly see a serious move against him, although I still don't think even at that point he'd, he'd leave office. I, yeah, I think that, I mean, all this indication so far is that um, he intends to battle through um, and seems sort of temperamentally not inclined Especially, I think, because most of his time in number 10 so far has been swamped by COVID. Mm. So I imagine he probably feels as though he hasn't really been able to get started on the stuff he really wants to do, which is obviously these massive, wide projects of changing our entire kind of political economy, um, a.k.a. levelling up and uh, decarbonising the economy, um, both of which are projects that go way beyond a single prime ministerial term anyway. But I think it would be perhaps useful or interesting to do a bit of uh, and this is I should say this is Matthew's suggestion we should do a bit of what Philip Tetlock would call super forecasting and assign a number so do we think Boris Johnson will be prime minister this time next year and what percentage and perhaps if you could explain where you get how you get to that figure I would say about 70% likelihood that, that Boris will be Prime Minister at the end of the year, which uh, will either make me look like a fool or a genius uh, in 12 months' time. And I think the, the institutional weighting, as well as the, the general sense um, within the Tory backbench, um, puts it on the Boris side. Institutional weight in the sense that um, there's relatively difficult process to go through in order to get rid of him. And that's the, the broader general fact that and there isn't necessarily yet a, a clear replacement for Boris. And you put those things together, as much as there might be frustration, um, if he can, as he, you know, Boris says nine lives and betting against Boris has never been a particularly good political um, prediction, um, bring that all together. And I, I think you, you do have Boris being PM at the end of the year. Okay. Alice, care to plump for a number? I agree. Uh, I wouldn't want to a number on it I don't have sort of any idea how you'd come to such a figure but I agree more likely than not that he'll be Prime Minister by the end of the year that sounds like about 55 55 okay (laughs) we'll give Alice 55 I boringly I'm kind of in the same camp as Matthew I think that the people often underestimate the just 
boring mechanics of these things. And if he doesn't want to go or accept that he ought to go for whatever reason, whether you think that's right or not, then it's very it's difficult to sort of force someone out. And also the kind of underlying fundamentals. I think one thing that hasn't been discussed, I think a lot of voters would find it really bizarre mm. to see a PM who won a really big majority then being ousted. You, you don't want way. the Australian disease, which is this, this constant replacement of leaders, which uh, Brits used to mock me about, at least back in the Theresa May years. And then after that, I think I got a little, a bit, a little bit less um, stick about. And that sense in which you just have this circus of politics and you become this kind of global laughing stock if, if you can't hold on to your leaders for a decent period of time. So I'm going to go with, just to finish this section off, I'm going to go in between the two of you and go for 60%. The reason I've gone slightly lower than Matthew is I think there is what Donald Rumsfeld might call known unknowns. I mean, we've already seen so many leaks that it wouldn't surprise me if there was more material, um, you know, sitting about waiting to be used um, in some way for whatever reason. Again, I think a lot of the speculation you see about why things are leaked, I think, is sort of dramatically. People have been watching House of Cards too much and, and imagine it's all this great kind of Machiavellian yeah, somebody, somebody scheme. Somebody asked me but... today, is, is Rishi behind all this? I'm like, well, probably not. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing is just is preposterous, uh, in my opinion. I mean, like, like with the Matt Hancock thing, it turned out, I think it turned out to be a security guard who leaked the footage. Mm. I think it's much more likely to just be sort of operative than some kind of political enemy because, well, just for overall. And the Martin Reynolds email went to about 100 people in number 10, including a lot of yeah. spads and civil servants. It wasn't exactly a private document. No, so it's kind of remarkable how long it stayed secret, actually. That's the thing that, the two, two things, the, the sort of internal mechanics are, one, how did it get kind of signed off? And two, how did how did it not get out before? Before um, Cummings flagged its existence. Right. Which, which, going back to the unknown unknowns, I think there is an extraordinary amount that political journalists either do know about and don't report on, or simply don't know about that goes on. And it's only over the top, you know, the top of the iceberg of, of politics we hear about. That's definitely true. I remember talking to a minister a while ago, back in my old in my old job, I was like a lobby correspondent, and they referred to a very well-known political book, I won't mention, and they said, oh, it's pretty good, but it does miss the deep politics, which I thought was quite an interesting uh, interesting line. Well, anyway, we were talking about the Australian disease there, Matthew, um, uh, which brings us sort of neatly onto our next topic, which is about Australian-style immigration. <laughs> it's about COVID. It's about tennis. I mean, what on earth has been going on? Uh, I think you're perhaps referring to uh, Nojab um, Djokovic. Novaks, yes. There uh, we go. No, Novaks. I mean, it is it is a bit of a merry-go-round that ultimately I think nobody comes off particularly well from. It's it's been hard to to follow what's going on, but more or less it seems you've got this. The premise is, um, you know, the world's number one tennis player refused to get a vaccine and yet still wants the privilege to be able to go to whatever country he likes any time. He applies for an exemption that he, in initial senses, gets accepted on the basis that he recently had COVID. He arrives at the border and the border officials basically cancel that and say, no, you can't stay. Um, he chooses to go through the legal process in order to um, uh, contest that determination, basically on process grounds, um, a, an Australian judge overrules. There was a particular issue where they said you're going to have three or four hours to have some sleep and talk to your lawyer, and then they came back in about an hour or two later and said, make a decision now. And from a process perspective, effectively the Australian government actually conceded on that point. At the same time, and I think this has kind of been missing some of the international discussion about what's really going on in Australia right now, which is the biggest COVID wave since the start of the pandemic. A, a huge number of cases in, in international terms, Australia is actually um, 
it got its first real sense of COVID. And that's been quite politically toxic for the government, particularly around issues around testing and access to um, rapid tests. You know, in the UK, you can just order them online for free. There've been some shortages, but it's been accessible. In Australia, I never did that. Um, they only recently approved them. And then there was never enough orders and accessibility and people are paying way above the odds for access to those tests. So I think basically what's happened is the government said to itself, let's use this opportunity to show we're tough on the borders, always very popular in Australia, um, mm. to, to be close to outsiders, an unfortunate tendency, I think. Um, and unfortunately, it's backfired on the government. Um, and then it got even more messy when it turns out Djokovic actually lied on his form with respect to where he'd been. He was seen out um, in uh, playing with a bunch of school kids around the time he tested positive, et cetera. Like there's all this added you know, nuance to it, but it's, it's been this kind of fascinating affair to watch that's kind of grabbed the world's attention. It's an election year in Australia, isn't it? It is an election year. Uh, it is the, I think it's going to be an election before May. And it's, I, I, if you, you hear it here first, I think it's, it's very likely the current government could lose. They've, they've been on the back from the polls for quite a long time. It was quite a surprise when they won last time, Exactly. Wasn't it? Yeah. And it was, it was assumed from a distance that that was a thumping victory, but it wasn't. It was actually a very narrow victory. And just as you can get a narrow victory, you can get a narrow loss. And there's a lot of seats to be lost um, in, in Australia. You just look at Western Australia, which has been a bit of a... Um, kind of a New Zealand-esque uh, shutdown state. You've got a real um, issue in the Federation Australia where states have taken their own approach to COVID. You might say that's good, you know, devolved, um, decentralised decision-making, but it's also um, caused a lot of problems for the central government because a lot of the powers for managing the pandemic uh, and, and kind of public health issues at a state level, so you don't get a consistent national response. And, and then you've got ScoMo looking quite weak. So um, that's Scott Morrison for the uninitiated. Yeah, yeah, ScoMo, ScoMo. ScoMo and Bojo uh, yeah. you know, meant to be yeah. best pals. So yeah, I think you've got all these, these kind of different political headwinds coming at the same time that is going to make it quite difficult for the government to be re-elected. Um, that's not to say that you can't pull something off and, and another semi-surprise victory, but the opposition this time is playing a much smarter game and, and I think could kind of sweep into power. And I, and I think you're right, that is the general context of what's going on here. It is a bit of a political ploy from the government that hasn't really worked out. Yeah, we carried a piece by, I think someone you know, called Gideon Rosner. Former colleague of mine, Former yes. Colleague. And he was quite kind of, I wouldn't exactly say pro-Djokovic, but he said that his take was that the sort of Aussies enjoyed seeing their politicians made sort of made fools of in this I think way. He had a, a great line in his piece where he said the Prime Minister leaped Steve Irwin like into <laughs> combat with the world's most prominent anti-vaxxer, which I thought was... Uh, and yeah, his point was there was something kind of uniquely Australian about this farce, that it kind of combines the sort of complexity of your politics with the kind of island nation mentality. Yeah, there was, what was this, the, the case a few years ago? Now I've, I've lost track in my mind of which celebrity it was whose dog got captured. Johnny, Johnny Depp. Depp. Johnny Depp's yeah. um, dog got um, taken aside by Australian Customs because they didn't get proper permission to enter the country. And you had the um, absurd situation of uh, Barnaby Joyce, who's the kind of country politician in Australia, saying, you know, we're going to defend our borders against this uh, threat presented by this dog. I, I, I think uh, the, the, the meme I saw online was on the lines of, you know, every couple of years for reasons that Australians don't really understand, uh, our politicians decide to go to war with a celebrity and um, hold them captive for reasons uh, beyond our understanding. But, I mean, in a sense, you think about the border issue, and in defence of the Australian government is this the kind of classic um, John Howard, who was Prime Minister for a, for a long period of time, and from the late 90s to the 2000s, had this line along the... Um, we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. And at the time, he was kind of justifying and, and quite politically successfully justifying some harsh policies against boat arrivals. Um, and then that became a theme again uh, after his time and when the boats started arriving again. And it's that ongoing sense that 
Um, although Australia actually does have a, a massive immigration policy um, and much bigger, probably about twice the size per capita than the UK, it's the. Do you mean a sort of percentage of the population? Yes, as a percentage immigrants. of the population yeah. who are moved to moved to Australia. That's slowed down because of COVID, but pre-COVID it was huge numbers, and even post-COVID there's talk about wanting to restart the economy um, through immigration as as a great way to continue growing as a country, and that's been a, a strong sense. That Australia is, and this goes back to populate or perish, and the the great immigration waves of. Greeks and Italians post-war and then Vietnamese and um, and now you're seeing a lot of Asian immigration. You, you have that sense that Australia needs people, needs population, but at the same time is quite sceptical about people who um, don't follow the rules, who um, come in and, and try um, to uh, manipulate the system um, and aren't necessarily contributing. Um, there's the big sense that it needs to be skilled migration, not unskilled migration. Whatever that means um, in practice is open for question. So I think a lot of the mood in Australia wasn't necessarily pro Djokovic on the basis that he should have probably just got the vaccine, right? Most people just got the vaccine. Oh, Australia's vaccine rates are very high. There's not much, there's not that much vaccine scepticism. And here he is trying to play games with um, the system. And the, there was this clip that came out um, from Channel 7 News in Melbourne where somebody had um, recorded them before they went to air just having a real go at him. And I think that, that is a strong sense. There's people sympathetic to him um, on the basis of the government playing all these games, like um, my, my, my friend Gideon. And then there's on the other sense, there's... God, why didn't you just get the vaccine? <laughs> yeah, so a plague on all your houses might be um, the way to look at it. Another, <laughs> I think the plot twist that I certainly wasn't expecting was uh, Nigel Farage <laughs> to then turn up in Serbia um, in front of a photo of Novak Djokovic expressing his his um, support for him. I don't, I'm really not sure on what basis. I don't know if Nigel's sort of... Is he reinventing himself as a kind of tribune of the anti-vaxxers? I've never really had him down as an anti-vaxxer. Was it something to do um, with Eastern Europe being Eurosceptic? I have no idea. Yeah, maybe the fact Serbia's not in the EU appeals to him. He also really liked the fact that you can smoke in restaurants in, in Serbia, which I think a lot of our listeners will probably agree with. He held up this little sign saying smoking aloud, being like, Serbia is a great country. Um, <laughs> there is a great irony, though, of course, in Nigel Farage being someone who doesn't want a country to have strong borders. Um, yes. you, you, would seem, you, would, you would assume from a traditional perspective that uh, he would support the idea of Australia being able to not allow someone to come in who's, who has uh, yeah. broken their rules. Or Eastern Europeans to come in anywhere. Well, <laughs> correct. really his vibe. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, I think from his perspective, and maybe it does work, I, I did a live GB News show um, with um, the family, is yeah. that is that kind of anti-elitist, and I, I think a kind of classical popular sense that, yeah. you know, you have this elite telling them when they have to get vaccines, trying to limit our freedoms, isn't that, you know, ridiculous? And, and he sees this as the current war to be fighting. It's also a great... It's it's similar to his um, palling around with Donald Trump in the sense that he is attaching himself to one of the most famous people probably mm. in the world. Well, the family just let him in so easily. Yeah. <laughs> you, think, you think you'd be a bit busy, you've sort of got all this, but you're like, ah, come in, Nigel. Or come, just like, who come. are you? Like, <laughs> Literally, yeah. Maybe um, they like him. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right, okay, so we have... Uh I think we've got about uh, 10 more minutes, guys. So we're going to pick each of our own stories of the week um, fairly briefly. So, uh, Alice, do you want to kick us off? What's... Yeah, well, so uh, one of the stories that I enjoyed this week uh, was the news that the independent MP for Islington North is uh, thinking of starting his own party. to Remind Sterling. us of his name. His name is Jeremy Corbyn. He's no ah. longer a Labour Jeremy. MP. Oh, <laughs> um, it's infectious. And... I love this story. You wrote a brilliant piece for us in, in Cabinet. Thanks. Flattery um, will get you everywhere. Uh, with the excellent headline, Off You Trot, um, suggesting that actually it might be well to Keir Starmer's advantage to have, you know, magic grandpa sort of acting as a pie piper to uh, take his trots and tankies uh, out of the party and, you know, detoxify it once and for all. Um, but I, I think there's one more thing that I would add um, is that I think like Jeremy Corbyn's own career is in some ways a testament to the kind of hegemonic power of the two-party system. He was a completely obscure BAD, yeah. no Mark MP until this series of accidents and sort of strategic errors by his colleagues. There's nothing wrong with a beard, Alice. He's a communist beard. Yeah, Marx had a beard and how did that turn out? Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, it was, you know, it was the (laughs) fact that he managed to to wrest control of the Labour Party that meant that he gained this following and in in fact made electoral gains. And I think maybe perhaps this brings us back to what Tories might be thinking uh, when they consider Boris Johnson's future. You know, the the reason, what you have to do in a two-party system is build a coalition of voters which Boris Johnson very successfully did at the, at the last election. That's how you win in a two-party system, and I think that'll be uh, preying on MPs' minds. Yeah, I think that uh, I think that's absolutely right. And it, also, if you look at the, the kind of hard-left factions, for the ones who were a bit more serious, their plan was always to try and inveigle their way into the mm. Labour Party and use it as a vehicle for revolutionary socialism and they put about very successfully among some of their supporters the idea that that labor is actually has always been a socialist party which anyone who actually knows about the history of labor um, labor's politics and formation knows is complete bollocks they were a, a party for the working man they weren't necessarily a socialist party though um, and if you read for example uh, Duncan Weldon's book um, muddling through is very good on this about how actually uh, Labour politicians, particularly in the 20s, were very fiscally conservative in a way that it would seem very strange. They weren't socialists at all. Um, but yeah, as you say, I think um, I think Christian Nemitz, your colleague, Matthew, 
uh, did a little uh, <laughs> scourge of the hard left. Mm. He did a little sort of tally of all the different like left wing fringe groups there are. I think that if the Corbo party become um, actually, you know, if they actually form it, it will be the sixth group. But the interesting thing is they don't, like he said, uh, like Christian said, is that they don't like hate each other. They all love Corbo. They're all mm. basically just little splinters of the same. Yeah, they're thing. also vain that they each have to have their own party. Yeah, everyone party. wants to be the leader of something. I mean, the central point here is always just the, the electoral arithmetic here. In a first party, uh, sorry, a first past the post system, it's just very hard for third parties to to crack in, and all they're going to inevitably end up doing if they run widely um, is take votes away from their, their closest equivalent and, and split the vote. So it's, it's very difficult for me to say that this is going to have much success. I, maybe Corbyn could be elected himself in his own seat. Maybe, I'm not, I'm not sure what his brand strength is compared to the Labour brand strength. Um, but more broadly, it, it's not going to have much legs. If anything, it'll, it'll probably help the Tories or help the Lib Dems by splitting the Labour vote if they, they try to you know, be a serious party running more widely if this even happens in the first place. I'm, yeah, I'm interested to see, in the, again, as with Boris, I think logistics are the important thing here. And in this case, it's to, you know, funding and stuff like that, an actual organisation. I'm really not sure that that is necessarily there. And also in a kind of different political world where Labour is doing a bit better, the appeal of a kind of Corbyn project is diminishes in proportion to how well Labour does. On the Interlington North point, it would be interesting because they were talking about um, having Mary Cray, who lost her seat in 2019, but had been a Labour MP for some time, had been a, I think she was a minister, and she was definitely cabinet. a shadow cabinet um, spokesman. Um, running her against Corbyn, someone with a high profile, would be quite interesting. And, and then you would, that, that question of whether his personal brand supersedes the party one would be a very interesting one. It certainly seems that this is evidence that he's not going to be let back into Labour, which is an interesting strategic decision from Keir. Yeah, I think it was deliberate. They put, they set the bar somewhere where they knew he would. I.e., he has to apologise for his comments yeah. on anti-Semitism. Essentially, saying anti-Semitism was inflated for political purposes, which is probably news to most British Jews. Um, and you know, he's very his his trademark is obstinacy rather than principle. Mm. And, you know, he's never gonna gonna apologise. Yeah, and I think it makes a lot of sense just from a, a, it's purely about to a large extent about Keir branding that I'm new, new Labour, let's put it that way. And I'm not the same as, as Corbyn, who you didn't find particularly palatable in the end. And I'm someone different and I've even got rid of Corbyn. I've taken a strong step here. I, I think that will, is the kind of thing that can cut through, yeah. that, that can, can send the signal that needs, he needs to send. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm not his... I don't think he's like the most gifted of politicians by any means, but I do think he did well on, on that specific issue. I think he came out and gave a, a good apology... Um, and yeah, and expelled Corbyn. Although you could always say, well, why were you in his shadow cabinet if you thought these things That's about him? Um, which is the perennial one, I think. Right, uh, moving on. Um, my own one, I'll be very brief. This is going to be a shameless plug for our, for our parent organisation, the Centre for Policy Studies. My colleagues, Eamon Ives and uh, James Hayward, have written a nice piece on CapEx about their new report, and it's called Leveling Up, Zeroing In. And essentially, it's about how to combine the two, the government's two big kind of domestic policy agendas. They have the two priorities, both kind of Olympian in ambition, which is uh, redistributing economic opportunity, or just to very briefly summarise it, and decarbonising economy. Uh, Matthew, what's your view on this? Do you think those two things can be compatible, or is, there, is, there, is this a circle that can be squared, given that... 
a lot of the places that they want to improve their economies are reliant on kind of high energy, energy intensive industries or, or have been in the past. Yeah, it does seem to be in, intrinsically in conflict. I, I'm not a big fan of the notion of levelling up in the first place. I, I don't think there's inherent value in um, geographical re reallocation. I think we should be more focused on individual opportunity rather than focused on place. Um, but in terms of the, the report itself and, and making the kind of policy point um, about a, a policy that I think is quite sensible, which is a border-adjusted carbon tax um, that would ensure that the UK industry isn't disadvantaged by um, net zero policies compared to countries that don't introduce such harsh policies. There is a risk, and, and my colleague um, Andy Mayer at the IEA has pointed this out, that that becomes another form of protectionism, another form of tariffs. It just becomes attempting to, to, to block people from being, competing in your domestic market, which I think is, is a reasonable and justified point to make, and, and therefore you have to be very careful about the design of it. But ideally, in the sense of what I'd like to see from kind of net zero policies or climate change policies is, is a tax, is something that says we're not going to try to regulate random things, we're not going to intervene in the market and try to promote some specific kinds of power or other kinds of power or whatever else it may be, is if you put in place a carbon tax, you can create the right incentives for the innovation um, and ensure that the negative externality is paid for. And if you don't border adjust it, then it's unfair to your local industry. So you do have to do some level of border adjusting. Yeah, Alice, what do you think? I mean, do you think these two things are, as Matthew says, intrinsically in conflict? Or is yeah, it a case of getting the right policies to make? I think Matthew makes an excellent point. I, I think it's difficult to tell people you're levelling them up if at the same time you're going to tell them they need to get rid of their car and they need to replace their boiler. So there's a real risk with kind of net zero policies when they start to actually impinge on kind of consumer life. That, uh, that they'll become untenable and unpopular. So I think this report makes some really sensible suggestions for how you can avoid that happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's particularly about things like the tax system, how to incentivise the super, continuing the super deduction, actually, which for kind of newer companies, industries in the green economy would be extremely helpful to them. They have to yeah. invest in plant and machinery that is going to be energy efficient, and it might be... Especially initially, it'll be very it can be very expensive. So we have this great policy for super deduction, which means they can not only write that off but actually get some money back. But it only goes for another couple of years, which is one of the strangest things in the March budget, um, mm -hmm. I thought. And it was something you guys and um, Matthew was at the Adam Smith Institute before, and they made great play of the so-called factory tax. So very happy when it was brought in, but a bit strange that it's only temporary. It is bizarre, it's only temporary. The the hope is that, first of all, it doesn't need to be, although um, uh, Eamon and uh, Jeremy do argue that it should be above 100% for environmental uses, I, I believe, in the report. But just generally speaking, as uh, the kind of full expensing or the being able to immediately deduct all your spending is an extremely sensible economic policy um, and is, is quite clearly boosts, massively boosts investment. And that's just absolutely essential because if you if you want to increase people's quality of life, you want to see their incomes go up, you need to be willing to invest. Businesses need to invest in productivity improvements, invest in process, invest in whatever else it may be. Um, and so it's, it's key to kind of quality of life and, and it proven policy to do that. Um, and you're right, it doesn't make much sense to say we're only going to do this for a couple of years. Um, maybe initially saying you can do it for a couple of years and then saying, oh, that's a huge success, let's keep doing it, would be a sensible approach. Yeah, 
my my sort of inkling on that was that it might be a sort of smart move where he will actually say in a couple of years, actually, mm. we're going to carry on with it, and then and and everyone cheers and claps. Well, you might even get some um, benefits from that, ironically, because people will bring forward investment to get yeah. the super deduction, yeah, and then yeah. they'll keep investing if you continue if you continue extending it for over time. Although some certainty would be good, yeah. and the and other less corporation tax hikes. Well, I was about to add, well. that, add that as well. I think that's a massive issue. Is if you get rid of the super deduction and you have the corporate tax hikes, the marginal tax on investing as in building things and creating things and doing all the kind of stuff that boosts our quality of life will be extremely high um, and if they, they don't square that they're, they're going to have some some serious risk of, of decline in investment in the coming mm. years well uh moving on from that very crunchy uh tax <laughs> and environment discussion i think we're going to come to certainly one of my favorite stories of the week uh, matthew you've chosen I've chosen our good friend, celebrity, our yeah. good friend Molly May, who I, I feel I need to disclose for the, the sake of ensuring I'm not confused for a pop culture expert I'd never heard of until uh, she became a Twitter sensation. Yeah, I, I hadn't either. Yeah, to be me fair. neither. We're not. <laughs> we, we might be disconnected from the people. But, uh, well, some of those elites. That, she's uh, the so she's the star of Love Island fifth series, I think. You're gonna, I think that's right. I've you're going to be way it. beyond my expertise. But yeah. the reason why she came to um, our particular interest was some comments that she made on a podcast, which were then drawn out, um, I think in the last week or so, about the nature of work um, and life opportunities and meritocracy. And, and more or less made some kind of pretty standard comments saying, you know, we're all raised in different ways and have different financial situation, but if you work hard, you can succeed. Um, something that you would think in most historical times would be pretty innocuous. Um, you then saw this uh, total Twitter pile on and then following that a bunch of media articles. And I think she issued some kind of an apology for the comments subsequently as well. Um, though my, my colleague, Christian Nemitz, who we mentioned earlier, wrote a great piece for CapEx, thinking about how um, effectively what you're seeing here is an extension of the kind of woke culture mob into an economic issue and that economics despite popular belief, has not entirely disappeared as an issue of debate. Mm. Um, I think he also makes a quite interesting point that whilst those on the woke side, the kind of Corbynista side, are still interested in economics um, as well as culture, those who are anti-woke tend to be just interested in culture and therefore who's fighting the kind of economic case against the kind of socialistic left. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly something on our pages. We have a lot of writers who write on cultural issues who are not at all economic liberals, who people who've voted Labour, who maybe gone away from Labour for cultural reasons, but mm. they're still not, you know, they're not Thatcherites or anything like that. And like Christian says in the piece, I think very uh, kind of acutely, is they the the sort of the the woke tendency, and especially in the states as well, um, have managed to fit capitalism into this overall worldview where capitalism is responsible for every kind of structural injustice that they see. So you'll get sort of books or articles saying like you cannot be anti-racist without being anti-capitalist mm -hmm. because capitalism is an instrument of, of white male power and this, this kind of thing, which is just whip, sort of the kind of postmodernist academic wibble that you'll, you usually kind of get meaningless. from this. And there's two interesting points here. One point is about, um, I think there's a disconnect between the way the elites talk about this and, and the way maybe you might look from a political science perspective in terms of public mood, which is to say... Um, at an elite level, there does seem to be the connection between that socialistic economics and that, you know, wokeness or whatever you want to call it. I think at a more popular level, and th this is where the political science fact comes in, which is economics has diminished as an, as an issue. 
I mean, you've got a lot of people who are more interested and engaged and identified based upon a cultural mode rather than uh, an economic one. And maybe the economics is tacked on later a little bit, but actually it can go either way. And, mm. and this, is, this is the great insight, of course. You, know, you can have Tory Remain voters um, who are globalists in their inclinations, um, might even be kind of quite culturally progressive, but uh, don't want to pay any higher taxes. Like that, that constituency does exist. And the reverse on the, the Labour side. So I think you've got this, rather than saying, you know, culture has replaced economics, you've got these really interesting, complex, fascinating, very difficult to unpack and very difficult to play with politically dynamic these days, where I think culture and economics overlap. Right. Um, and, and, and whilst we might have used to have a kind of classic left-right economic debate, we now have that overlapped with a woke, unwoke, or you know, whatever kind of terminology you're going to use for the kind of latest cultural debates. And those are increasing importance. Whilst economics has slightly declined, it's still there also important. So yeah. you have this quite difficult situation where you've, as a political leader, you're trying to speak to a bunch of different audiences um, who might be have different views on cultural and, and, and economic issues uh, and, and trying to appeal to them on, on one basis or another basis. And if you look at in a two-party political system, they have to take positions on that. And that's caused a lot of issues for Labour in particular, where they're, they're trying to speak to their woke London kind of constituents um, who are you know quite left-wing on a lot of things, um, whilst they might at the same time be wanting to get their working class constituents back who are not very woke but might have left-wing economic perspectives. And that's the challenge um, in politics these days is the way in which the economics interacts with um, the, the cultural overlay. Yeah. I think one interesting feature of this whole thing was that she didn't even mention Thatcher, but she was you know, accused of being a Thatcherite, <laughs> which, you know, personally, I don't see as an insult. But anyway, I think... <laughs> I, I would hope yeah, not. Thatcherite <laughs> is not an insult in this building. Yeah, certainly uh. not in this building. Um, but I think it's, it's funny how you say how uh, we have this whole new complicated culture war. But in some ways, the culture is on the left anyway, has barely moved on at all if it's still identifying itself in opposition to Thatcher. It's not the 80s anymore, guys. <laughs> I was going to ask you that, Alice, as a sort of card-carrying Tory. What Do you think this is a, mess, a, a decent message for the Conservatives to... It's a very classic one. You hear it all the time. You know, Absolutely. like, everyone should be... I'm not talking about equality of opportunity. I'm talking about telling people that actually your position in life is entirely down to your own effort rather than circumstance. I don't see it that way. I see it as about aspiration. You know, she was an ambitious young woman who went on a reality TV show and, you know, has achieved success in her life. She's aspirational and... People who watch this show, I assume, having never watched it myself, also look at these glamorous (laughs) people and aspire to a better life and there's nothing wrong with that. This, yeah. I mean, this is one of the, the oldest debates about whether or not you have kind of structural factors that mean that you can't succeed or whether or not we have a meritocratic society. And as usual, the truth is somewhere between. There is a, a large sense in which if you're, quote unquote, born into privilege, you're going to have a lot more opportunities than you might otherwise have. Um, and, you know, one of those privileges might be um, that you're particularly academically inclined. And now we live in a world where um, academics is highly prized and therefore you do well in life. Um, and then you might be someone who's not born into that kind of circumstance. But I think the central point here is no matter what circumstance you're born into, working hard is still good advice. Mm. Yeah, it, yeah. Whatever you do, you if you work out hard, your opportunity. Exactly. Even yeah. if people might have a different, you know, let's say they're on a different plane of what they can achieve, that plane of opportunity is is their maximum possible amount they can achieve um, is going to be um, done by working hard. I think this is this is the kind of the classic idea of the the, the soft. Um, bigotry of low expectations. If you tell somebody, particularly let's say someone from a, a minority background, that you can't succeed, there's all these structural factors against you, um, 
that's basically telling them to fail. That's encouraging them to fail and not to, not to work hard. And it might be very true. There might be you know structural racism out there that's going to hold them down. That they might come from a bad financial situation. But telling them that you can't get out of that and you can't succeed is, I think, a very negative and very counterproductive message for those people. Yeah, I think that's right. You can that's, hold two thoughts at the same time. Yeah. Like there uh, is lots of racism, but telling people that they have no chance is is counterproductive. I suppose there's a whole different debate we could get into is that what I think Molly May was, was born with, the, the advantage she was born with was being beautiful. Um, and she exploited that by going on a reality TV show and becoming an Instagram influencer. And maybe, you know, there's something that we should worry about, a society that kind of commodifies female beauty in that way. But perhaps that's a whole other argument. I think that um, actually this, this whole um, incident also shows up sort of the... I think it wouldn't have happened to some sort of 40-something male entrepreneur type mm-hmm. if he just said exactly the same thing. Absolutely. So the fact that she's young and blonde and just seen as this kind of uh, intellectually insubstantial figure by her critics, I mean, she came in for this just extraordinary pile-on. Um, the other thing, of course, about a pile-on is that each individual bit of it, probably on its own, isn't that, that big a thing, but taken together, it's like this tidal wave um it also just strikes me as a bit hypocritical if you're kind of very uh, right on in certain spheres but happy to just absolutely flay someone in the public eye because you don't happen to like something they said yeah be nicer to each other i mean yeah, be kind <laughs> be but kind. not not to the wrong people well exactly yeah, i mean there is something interesting about everyone just needing to pile on it's all it's pylons are effectively social signaling it's you signaling to everyone else that you're have got the correct opinion for, for those in your club. Um, I, I think there is something interesting as well. You know, we, we're effectively agreeing with her and making the same points, but I doubt that we will get a pile on as a result. Mm. It's that, you know, we're expected to say it um, and able to say it. There's another sense in which also I notice in public debate that there is, does seem to be women get much harder time. I've noticed this, you know, within the think tank world, someone like Kate Andrews gets... Uh, obviously, she's a very effective communicator, and that's partly the reason why I think. But also, she, being a woman, gets and being much, American as well, much more it's, vicious yeah. attacks. So yeah. that the, these things do seem to have a big impact when people start piling on, even if they're not going to acknowledge it, um, in, into one individual. Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. She gets way more vitriolic abuse. I think the combination of being a woman and being American, which if you think that the government's about to privatise the NHS and uh, a right wing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, person says otherwise says uh, you know they might there might be some things that are imperfect about it that, that always seems to be the trigger for this kind of big big pile on um, anyway guys we we've had a an extremely fruitful discussion I think a great intro to 2022 um, Alice thank you very much for joining our own podcast thank you my pleasure and also my job <laughs> yes and Matthew thanks very much indeed I'm sure we'll be hearing from you again uh, very soon uh, do tune me. in uh, do tune into the next um, CapEx podcast when Alice will be interviewing Martin van der Weyer on his new book, which is called... The Good, the Bad and the Greedy. Yep, The Good, the Bad and the Greedy, uh, which is about where capitalism is going wrong. So it should be a fascinating <laughs> listen. That's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for joining us on the CapEx podcast. We've got some great guests coming up in the next few weeks, but if there are any topics you'd like to hear from us on, or any guests you think ought to be featured on the podcast, do let me know by dropping me an email. I'm on john at capex.co. Thanks very much and see you next time.